Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also sponsored by our patrons, Tracy Newman, Craig Williamson, Jessica DeMarco Jacobson, Erin Patterson, Jill Harrigan, Chantel Oliver, Ellen Gross, Jamie Lang, Mandy and Virginia Booty, and Monique Harris-Pixado. You can become a patron too at our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, and even get your own shout out in a future episode. We're also very excited to announce the launch of our very first What's Your Name Women's History Tour. If you would like to join us in England next fall, check out our website at whatshernamepodcast.com and get more information. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. I want you to think about some people who made really important contributions to science. Who are some of the people that you think of? Well, first I just think of Tycho Brahe because he wins because he had a silver nose. Right, that's valid, obviously. Uh, Marie Curie. Hmm. Uh, Einstein. Newton. Mm, Emily du Chatelet. Of course. Um, Oppenheimer. Is that a contribution? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All of these people, when we think about people who contributed to science, tend Uh to be people who discovered stuff. Yeah. They brought new information to the world. Yeah. But what if I told you that possibly the person who made the biggest contribution to science in the 19th century was a woman named Jane Marsett? How come I've never heard of her? I know. Oh, no. Is she one of those who did all the things, but the husband got all the credit? No. Thank goodness. Jane Marsett was not a chemist. (laughs) She was not a physicist. She was not an astronomer. Biologist. Nope. Zoologist. Nope. Naturalist. Nope. Natural philosopher. Nope. Mathematician, then. She was not a mathematician. (laughs) Jane Marsett did not make scientific discoveries. Okay. Jane was a woman who loved learning things and thought that everyone else deserved a chance to learn stuff too. (gasps) I love her. She is probably more responsible for the scientific education and scientific understanding of several nations than any other person. Cool. When we think about scientists, Mm -hmm. we always think about the people who made the big discoveries and changed the world. But our guest, Miranda Nessler, makes a very compelling argument that there is more than one way to change the world. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. My 
My name is Miranda Garno Nestler, and I'm the director of women's literature and history at Whitmore Rare Books in Pasadena, California. I came to Whitmore Rare Books after having spent about 10 years as an academic and a professor of early modern and gender studies at various different universities. I'm now kind of functioning in the shop as our specialist who ensures that women, LGBTQ plus people, authors of color and indigenous writers have a place not only in the gender studies section of the shop, but also on every single shelf of the shop. Jane Marsett was the most prominent of what Miranda Nessler has termed citizen scientists. These were mostly women who had been excluded from the gentleman's education that was necessary to enter the sciences and decided to do something about that. One of the things that I started to notice is that a lot of focus was being put initially on women who had done work that was recognized as science like a man. And I do that in absolute scare quotes because I don't believe that that's actually representative of it. But people were paying attention to women who were like Caroline Herschel, women like Mary Somerville, who were discovering things, were breaking down the doors and becoming the first women to present at the Royal Academy of Sciences. So I could go in, I could say, here are women who are writing under their brother's names, their father's names, they are assistants, but they are kind of the key discoverer, that that work was already being done. I know that there are more women than that. And that's where I found the women citizen scientists. These were women who did not have university degrees, who did not always have formal scientific training. And so they couldn't do the kind of work of publishing in an academic journal. They didn't have the kind of credentials to walk in the door and do a presentation at a university or a society. What they did know how to do though, was talk to people about complex ideas and break them down and make science accessible. Like many people who end up changing the world, Jane Marset was born in a time of massive change and conflict. <laughs> she was born in London in 1769 to a family that was part of the academic intellectual elite. And she grew up surrounded by all of the greatest minds of London. Oh, I'm jealous. Her house functioned essentially as a salon where all of the literati gathered to talk about science Politics, literature, medicine, economics, anything that was interesting and complicated, her family wanted in on it. I want to be there. So in a lot of ways, Jane is a product of her era in the best possible sense. Her father and mother very much valued the idea of having accomplished children, regardless of their sex. So Jane had access to her brother's tutors. Her brothers were frequently teaching her what they were learning. And she was encouraged to soak up as much information as she possibly could. Her parents are extremely clear to her that she is brilliant, extremely intelligent and talented. But they also very firmly instill the idea that women cannot be innovators. 
Women do not create ideas. Women are repositories for knowledge, and they preserve <laughs> and pass it on, but they <sighs> never create it themselves. Okay. So the one thing that did kind of shape her in both problematic and promising ways was the idea was constantly reinforced upon her that as a woman, she was never going to be an innovator. That a woman who was smart, the best she could do was be a repository of those things rather than someone who takes them and pushes them into breaking new ground. Okay. So she's like a biological archive. Yeah, she's a, she's a really good encyclopedia. Okay. This is the era that they invented the encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> Jane's mother dies when she's 15 years old. Her brothers are grown and are out creating lives of their own. And for Jane, this means a number of things. It means that she becomes in charge of running a household, which at the time was a lot like running a business. She's also in charge of the social life. She and her father develop a very companionate, very loving, very supportive partnership because her father loves surrounding himself with any kind of intellectual richness. She is the life and soul of these salons. She is known as the sparkling wit, but she is becoming more and more aware that she is not able to keep up with these conversations. She is every bit as intelligent as they are, but she doesn't have access to the education and the information to be able to understand what's going on. And she is getting increasingly frustrated at first because she feels that she's failing in her duties as a hostess, because if she can't understand, how is she going to facilitate these conversations if she doesn't understand the words that these physicists are throwing around? Yeah. When it comes to ideas regarding people like her, regarding women, she was born 10 years after Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Wollstonecraft, of course, author of Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Yeah. Mother of Mary Shelley, famous early feminist. You know, Vindication of the Rights of Woman comes out in 1792. Jane Marsett is 23 by that point. It is a pivotal moment for ideas about women's inherent intellect and women's intellectual equality with men to come into her life and be articulated the way that Wollstonecraft does. She starts to realize that she's not just irritated that it's making her job harder. She's irritated that she has been barred from this information for no reason other than her sex. Mm. But she also is definitely aware that she's in an extremely unique position where she has access to all of this information because she has access to men who will give her the information. Hmm. She starts to become more and more aware of the unjustness of this, of how many other people are excluded. In one of these salons at her father's house, she meets Alexander Marset. Who is an exiled physician and a political dissident from Geneva. He finds a social place in Haldeman's household, and he absolutely loves in Jane the intellect and the curiosity that she also loves in him. 
During the 1700s, so many intellectuals from across Europe ran to England right. for, like, safe harbor. That's where all the troublemakers went. And they all hung out in Jane's parlor. Aww. <laughs> I'm so jealous. He really appreciated her mind, her intellectual curiosity, and he respected her as an intellectual instead <laughs> of just as this sparkling hostess who everybody loves. Well, that reminds me of Margaret Cavendish. Yes. I said exactly <laughs> the same thing. And it's the exact same pattern. Every yeah. single step of the way, he is her biggest cheerleader. Oh, he is cool. right there supporting and encouraging her to do the work that she ends up mm. doing. See, in every era, there's smart women and supportive men. It's a thing. We know. We married yeah. ones. <laughs> Go find one. <laughs> and so she winds up finding a companionate marriage with somebody who wants her to be present in his intellectual life and who wants to kind of mutually challenge each other to be better at what they're doing. So as she moves from the Haldeman household into creating her own household with Alexander, they have the opportunity to continue pulling in these types of politicians and artists and intellectuals. But he also is somebody who she talks to about her frustrations. She admits that she feels out of water and inferior when talking to these men. They begin to consciously invite women to their salons. They make sure Ooh. that the most prominent blue stocking scientific feminist minds are included in their parlor conversations. Cool. So that she has this kind of varied space. It's not just intellectual men. She's now in the presence of women who are also intelligent and making a push for equal education. They know what it's like to have been shut out of yeah. that education and to be struggling to keep up while being every bit as brilliant. And so they can shift the conversations around in ways that she will be able to participate. Alexander also encourages her to educate herself about science and medicine. The remarkable thing there is encouraging a married woman to spend her time on educating herself instead of household management. Mm -hmm. This is not what you're supposed to be doing with your time. But as Jane Marsett embarks in earnest on this campaign of self-education, she realizes very quickly that there's another major roadblock in her way here. There are no textbooks at the level that I need them to be. All of the textbooks for science and medicine presume that you had a gentleman's education. They presume huh. that you were taught throughout your youth by a private tutor and that you have the core level of scientific knowledge and there's no books that start at an elementary level. She huh. literally cannot access this information without other people feeding it to her. Hmm. Once again, she is made very aware she has a husband who can teach her these things. She has a parlor full of famous scientists who are thrilled to explain things to her. But she is becoming more and more aware of how impossible this process would be for almost everyone else. And she starts to wonder, what could the world look like 
if anyone who wanted to could access this information. Yeah. Who are we leaving out of the conversation? Be an enlightened world. Think of all of the brilliant minds that are being shut out and that we are all losing simply because they didn't grow up rich. Yeah. And from this idea springs, in my opinion, the most important innovation in science education, possibly education in general, in a hundred years. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Maybe you're looking for experiences for your kids this holiday season instead of stuff. Girls Can Crate delivers a monthly package to your kids that teaches them about a real woman who changed the world. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two to three hands-on STEAM activities, and more. Girls Can Crate teaches girls that they can be and do anything. It really is inspiring, exciting, and just the thing to get you through the rest of these crazy quarantine times. And they would make an amazing gift. Go to girlscancrate.com and use the code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription that you order. Try it out now. She starts writing a series of books, the Conversations series. Her first one is Conversations in Chemistry, and it is a basic elementary level textbook for everyone. Huh. So are you saying she wrote the 18th century version of Chemistry for Dummies? Yes, except she did something even more remarkable than that. Ooh. And that's what I kind of love about Marcet is her impulse isn't to say, how do I create a textbook that looks like this? What she winds up doing is taking the novel form and saying, this is a really digestible, fun way of breaking down complex concepts, introducing vocabulary, and walking people through a classroom experience. Without even realizing that it is a radical choice. She writes these science textbooks as novels. Oh, that's clever. Because she realizes, I have these salons, no one else has this, people will be reading this by themselves. How are they going to have a Socratic dialogue by themselves? Wow. And so she takes the most popular and, uh, of course, controversial and sneered at form of literature read by women at this time and she writes novels that explain science cool and that's how she shapes the conversation series these very complex ideas being brought down not so that they're simplistic but so that they're simplified because of her desire to make people comfortable in a household space or in a social space she can see how you do it without talking down to someone. And I think that, you know, as problematic as the message her parents gave her was, becomes something so promising in her that she doesn't think she's being revolutionary. Often it's a mother who is educating her daughters and you are watching the lessons play out in dialogue form. Wow. And so she has manufactured a classroom 
for people to experience a real question-based interactive learning experience all by themselves in a book. Cool. She winds up creating not only dialogue and vocabulary, but she winds up teaching people how to create rigorous experiments. These are genuine experiments that actually give a really good understanding of the subject being taught here. One of my favorite ones, the instructor in the book has a tin box. Each side of the box has a different surface. So one side has been sanded and one is all rusted and one is covered in soot and one is really highly polished. And the teacher in the scene fills the tin with hot water and then uses a mirror to reflect the heat onto a thermometer from each different side and gets four different readings. So they're showing how the exact same metal with different treatments will reflect heat completely differently. This is a completely real experiment that people could replicate in their own home. Cool. She knows that many of these women are going to be tasked with educating their daughters. Yeah. And she can revolutionize what these girls are learning by giving these mothers access to materials that they can teach from. Cool. These books are a sensation. They are so wildly popular that when the women's colleges, women's seminaries finally start opening in the early 19th century, they use these as the textbooks. These are the only beginner textbooks for almost all of these topics. So how many did she write? Lots. Dozens of books on all kinds of scientific topics, chemistry, natural philosophy. She's covering all of the major centers of science. They are some of the best-selling books of the century. Cool. In fact, they're so widely known that they get referenced in other famous works of literature. The governess in Henry James's Turn of the Screw just sort of offhandedly compares one of her students' textbooks to those of Mrs. Marset. Yeah, cool. They were the shorthand standard for talking about scientific education for a generation. And as the Education Act comes in in England and all male children, at least, are guaranteed an education now, these become the science textbooks for the nation. Huh. Her books literally wow. educate an entire country. Wow. What power. It's a huge influence. It's an incalculable influence. Yeah. And this generation that takes control as the Victorian age rises, grew up with Mrs. Marset's books. She yeah. was their educator. She taught them not just science. She starts with science, but then she branches out. She starts writing books on political economy. She writes books on all of these complicated subjects in ways that beginners can understand them and join the conversation. Mm, cool. She is also reinforcing the idea of knowledge for knowledge's sake. That even women could learn things because they wanted to. And that educating yourself and learning new things were their own virtue. Every single book, there is some, usually a girl student, 
who says, I just don't think girls should have to learn this stuff. When am I ever going to use this? And every time the instructor in the book carefully explains, yes, there are reasons, but there's also very carefully planted the idea that learning things is good. <laughs> and that's remarkable for girls entering a Victorian era that are so hyper-focused on female education as a utility for the males around you. In her lifetime, we watch education, at least for upper-class women, move from something that is based in humanistic, what we now might say liberal arts, right? Arts, humanities, accomplishments, mm -hmm. to the much more Victorian ideals of domestic arts. Yeah educating girls to be a good wife and mother rather than to be an educated human being. And so her work exists as this really strange pushback right in the middle of this movement that educating yourself because you wanna is uh -huh. revolutionary. Yeah. You know, one of the things that winds up coming out of this is that massive increase in industrialization and technological development, in part because she and women like her started to produce books like this. The most famous example, actually, I mean, I hate to focus on it too much because I think it diminishes a little bit the widespread idea that she was kind of pushing a lot of people to develop, but Michael Faraday, the great electrochemist, he was a bookbinder's apprentice and he bound copies of Marset's Conversations on Chemistry and read it during the binding. And he always credited her with turning him into a scientist because it was the first time that he realized it wasn't that he lacked the intellect, it was that he lacked the vocabulary. And my favorite part of this is that in the later editions, of Jane Marset's books. She was constantly updating these books too. She didn't just let them go out of date. As new discoveries happened, she would update these books for new editions. And in the final editions of her books, Michael Faraday's works are covered. So he goes full circle from becoming a scientist because he read this book to being featured in the book that launched his career. Oh, I just absolutely love it. Really, you cannot calculate the impact on the future of her entire nation and on the world. Yeah, that is the enlightenment in a <laughs> nutshell. Right there, she's at the right place at the right time, spreading knowledge to everybody to change the world. Yeah, love it. And as Miranda Nessler points out, this entire educational revolution springs out of not just her innovation and her curiosity, it springs out of her empathy. She didn't just say, I feel isolated and left out of these conversations. I shall educate myself so I can mm. sparkle. She says, I feel left out of these conversations. I bet everyone except the gentlemanly mm -hmm. elite feel left out of these conversations and I'm going to do something about it. She doesn't leverage her privilege to climb to the top of the ladder. She leverages her privilege to open the back door. She can do what she does because she's both the ultimate insider and outsider. If she were fully one or the other, she couldn't have accomplished what she did. 
And the reason she can see that is because despite her privilege, the one area that hinders her is her sex. And so she's always, to some extent, outside. And I think that this really taps into a quality that I think, again, gets underrated when we talk about women heroes, which is the fact that she's incredibly empathetic. She is in the room and she can see that the only way in was to have a title and a university level education. And I think that the thing that she really does accomplish is that back door. If you can't come in past those guards there, you can come in through here. Once you're in the room, nobody cares how you got there. We just have to get people in the room. Yes. Mariah Edgeworth, who was about as original a blue stocking as you can be, wrote about watching Marcy, where she says, you watch her walk through a room, and at first it seems like she doesn't talk that much. She listens to everything everyone says, and she asks follow-up questions, and question, and question, and question. And I think someone like a man who feels threatened by assertive women see this as a weakness, when actually it's a great strength, because she doesn't seem to be putting herself in a position to buck the system. She's just asking questions of people who know more. But that is the very way that you buck the system. <laughs> and so she does it in this really kind of beautiful way. She never does things that make people feel threatened. When I started looking for women scientists in the shop and my initial drive, like most people, is to go for the ones who are doing science this way. I think that that also speaks to how we think about heroism. There's often this kind of mythos of the singular individualistic hero, this woman who rose up out of discouragement and educated herself and spoke out to the world. But I think what's kind of amazing about Jane is she's like most of us who feel self-doubt and who rely on our loving connections with other people. Jane Marset wasn't this lone wolf who powered through on her own. That's much more relatable to me. Very few of us can be the bold hero who never gives up despite everyone being against them. Most of us succeed or fail in large part because of the people around us yeah. and when we acknowledge those things and when we can look at the kinds of situations that let other women be successful and try to create more of them mm -hmm. we all benefit amen i can't ever quite lose sight of that that she had the confidence to move through rooms of incredibly important people who were shaping the Western worlds. But at the same time, she was someone who was filled with self-doubt because of her woman-ness. It was trained into her. And she really, really relied on the people around her. Every step of the way, Alexandra is there reminding her, you know, it's not a bad thing for a woman to put her name on a title page. And it's really within this space that she sees as encouraging and loving and safe that she does this amazing thing that's very heroic, that she doesn't see as heroic or activist or radical. 
And I think that that really is something that makes her important to include in kind of a canon of women heroes because so many of us think to ourselves, I couldn't be Caroline Herschel discovering comets. I couldn't be Susan B. Anthony speaking and marching and being beaten for voting, right? But the kind of quiet, unintentional activism that can happen is no less important. And I think we would find a lot more women to include if we start to think about that type of heroism too. Too often, I think we we shape our conversations about innovative women or important women who change the world in terms of their suffering. Mm. Once we start looking for a different way of marking importance and influence, we find so many new people, these women who really shifted the whole ground of science without ever making a single discovery. Her work turned the world upside down. Yeah. And mostly, she was successful at turning the world upside down because she looked like she wasn't. She wasn't lumped in with the blue stockings that were a threat to things because she was writing nice little science novels for ladies. And so the subversive power of these books went completely undetected by the men who were trying so hard to keep all of those folks out. They, I'm sure, would have been absolutely stunned to discover in one generation this accessible knowledge smashing open the gates of their tightly guarded little kingdom. She was safely in the realm of novels where ladies belong. And Miranda Nessler mentioned one of the reasons that she chose to talk about Jane Marset was because she feels that what we are doing here in this podcast is Mm. another example of that. The refusal to gatekeep knowledge and the refusal to submit to academic snobbery Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. That's something, especially in our family, that we are determined oh my gosh, to do. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that... I live for. <laughs> Who wants to control access to information? Let everyone in. Knowledge is for everyone. Right. Th- those are the people who deserve it the most, right? Yeah. Because for these gatekeepers, it's nothing about talent or intelligence. It is 100% about power power and who gets to control access to that power. Yeah. Caroline pipes up in dialogue and she says that she thinks that a woman should be able to be excused for being ignorant on the topic of political economy. And Mrs. B replies tartly, quote, when you plead in favor of ignorance, there is a strong presumption that you are in the wrong. <laughs> Burn. Huge thanks to Miranda Nessler. If you'd like to learn more about Jane Marsett or find links, photos, resources, and more, visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. Music for this episode was provided by John Michelle, Nico DiNapoli, and Amanda Setlick-Wilson. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. 
Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson. And this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.